0: Hi, I'm Anne Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. Today, I'm very excited to talk to another professional from the front lines of supporting adolescents in grief. Lauren Schneider is the Clinical Director of Child and Adolescent Programs at Our House, a grief support center with two locations here in Los Angeles. So, hi, Lauren. Hi, Anne. <laughs> so first... I just want you to, yeah, just want to ask you a little bit about our house and how you became involved there.
1: Okay. Well, um, as you said, we're a grief support center. Uh, we've, this is our 30th year actually. Wow. And I've been, I've been running the program for 21 of those years going back to 2000. Mm. Uh, so for a very, very long time. And, um, What's really unusual is that we are the only grief support center in Los Angeles County. And it's such a big county. And I just returned from the National Alliance for Children's Grief Symposium and you know, met colleagues from all over the United States. And in a, such a large urban area as Los Angeles, um, in comparable cities of this size, there would usually be more than one grief support center. But you know, we're we're tasked with serving this huge urban area, which is you know really a daunting thing to do. So, mm. um, so the way that we that we serve in my program, the most number of children is. Um, through one of our three kids programs, and that's our school-based programs. So, um, you know, this year we we returned to in-person grief groups in Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second biggest school district in the United States. So, right. we've been we've been doing our school program for almost the entire 30 years but we're also in other school districts in the county so our house is a volunteer based organization we are not a mental health center um, and we don't provide therapy we provide what's called grief support services so we train our volunteers to go into these um into the settings where we do grief groups outside of our brick and mortar locations right so um an LAUSD school will contact us and say they want a grief group we'll match one of our volunteers and they take our evidence-based curriculum and they deliver this 10 week group at these schools elementary middle and high schools mm. yeah so we're fortunate that we can do that cuz we'll do between 60 and 80 school groups a year and if you average eight eight kids per group you know that's hundreds and hundreds of kids that are getting some you know some grief support mm. Yeah,
0: and are those programs um, something that happen over several weeks? Is it one day? Like how
1: how long are those? Once a week for ten weeks. Oh wow! Okay, they'll get pulled out of class, and and the beauty of that program is that their their parent or guardian is not required to mobilize and have the resources to take them anywhere for this service after school. Right, it's free of charge to the schools and it happens during the school day so it it removes a lot of the barriers to um to getting this um, grief support that impacts kids in our other two programs and
0: do kids sort of self-identify needing that um, or how do the schools
1: go ahead sometimes or the school um, let's say school counselor or school social worker and the teachers They work with our school program coordinator to identify students, and then we go in and we do a brief a a brief assessment of each child Mm. to see if they could benefit from that type of support. Because some kids really um, need um, they need to get their grief support in a one on one, like from a you know, from a therapist instead because of the level of trauma that they've experienced.
0: Right, right. But that sounds so great just to acknowledge, just for them to have a moment um, and something regular over 10 weeks where they can acknowledge and talk to other kids who they might not talk to about grief because it's sort of an awkward subject for them to bring up themselves. But with a facilitator, I would imagine that's pretty freeing for them to be like oh yeah well my mom died too and I didn't know your mom died or or whatever
1: exactly and yeah. it it can reduce that isolation that yeah they might be feeling at school because I mean one of the biggest problems Annie is that their, their peer group changes after the death, and they don't talk about that it has happened during the school day with their peers, and so they might, they might not even know that there's another student um, sitting right in the same classroom with them right. who would understand what they're going through because they're certainly not gonna let anybody know what happened at home because they don't want to be different. They don't want to stand out and be different or draw any attention to themselves at all when they're at school.
0: Right. That makes so much sense. And I feel like also doing it at schools um, would would potentially help teachers understand better how to support kids. Is that Part of the, the idea. Well, they're
1: not sitting in the room with us okay. when we're doing it. We do have um, require a school professional to co- to be in the room with our group leader, but it's usually a social worker mm-hmm. or a therapist. Right. Um. And but then for teachers, another service that we offer is we do a lot of trainings. Um, for the faculty if it's requested on how to support grieving students in the school setting.
0: Yeah. I just think you're spending so much, so much of your life is at school. Your whole social life is at school. You spend your entire day there. And it's very easy to ignore the fact that you're dealing with this major loss because you're not at home. You're not thinking about it. Kids have, I think, such an amazing uh, ability to kind of turn their focus off of it Um, but yet to feel it completely unacknowledged at school where you spend so much time does tend to make a child i think feel alienated so just to have a teacher who recognizes that the child is grieving and maybe just without sitting them down to talk to them about it just kind of acknowledges it in some subtle ways i think that could mean a lot to a kid
1: Well, it's it's super complicated. Like you just said, some really, really truthful things about grieving children, Um, but it's complicated. There's there's like both sides to that coin, Mm -hmm. right? So, yes, they spend more waking hours at school than anywhere else during the school day, and so potentially... They would need grief support there, but um, they they some of them do a really great job at keeping those feelings um, completely at bay because there's so much distraction at school. Yeah, you know their their friends are there. There's a lot of distraction from the you know the the teaching that's happening at school, and. Um, So many of them don't think about their grief or feel the um, experience, the emotions until they get back home um, or are alone in their rooms at night. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's not like they're they're going into the counseling office and saying, excuse me, miss. Yeah. I need to speak with you because I'm being I'm flooded with um, you know, feelings of grief right now that hardly ever happens after, you know, it hardly ever happens at all to tell you the truth. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, on the rare child who does need, um, you know, does experience like what I call a grief tsunami, Mm. you know, maybe they have a go to person, after when, after the group ends, or, you know, um, when we're not there because they've made this connection with their school counselor or their school, social worker, or, with a teacher right. that they can go talk to at recess mm-hmm. or at lunch
0: or even peers. I mean, I would imagine sometimes they even maybe if they talk about their grief and grief group with peers, they might find that person is somebody they can talk to at recess.
1: Well, that's the best outcome, and yeah. and not to get too theoretical, but for teens, that um, peer group that they to identify with is developmentally so important for them, and and so if if their kind of standard peer group is no longer Experienced is available be after the death, because um, they you know, nobody in their peer group gets what it feels like to have a, say, a sibling die or a mom or dad die. Um, then they're feeling very abandoned and isolated by their peer group. If the school then has a grief group for them, now they have a new peer group that they could identify with that um, that's gonna help them with that developmental task, um, you know, which is identity versus role confusion, according to Eric Erickson, you know, the developmental psychologist. So it, it really serves a lot of purposes for them to get a grief group at school and parents who are listening guardians listening they can request it so if they're in a city other than la they can request a grief group um, at their school
0: oh that's great to know yeah i wonder if parents even think about that they don't right (laughs) they think about right i think most parents think about what can i do how how can i get my kid into therapy um, for this problem. And it's, it's, it's not always, you know, it's not always the best thing for the kid, or, I mean, I don't think it's bad, but I just think like you were saying, and this was sort of my next question is the importance of peer support. So like, what is the main objective for, um, peer support for kids who are grieving? You just mentioned about just developmentally, it's so important, but what are some of the other objectives, um, that are met with peer support?
1: One of one thing that's met is that they're getting they're getting their grief support from somebody that knows what they're doing. And as a this is going to sound pretty appalling, but in our experience in all these years, because I worked with grieving kids before, I came to our house too at another setting. Okay, therapists do not know how to work with grief. Mm. They're not trained how to do that in graduate school. And they they don't take continuing education classes in in most cases, and so they don't really know how to work with grieving kids. Mm. So if a, if you're in a location where you can take your child to a grief support setting like our house, mm. um, or if the school um, is offering something, because schools you know schools do do try to offer grief support groups themselves as well then hopefully the, they're getting they're getting interventions that are known to be helpful they're evidence based they're known to be helpful with kids
0: and and what are some of those what are like when you say evidence based um, programs or or
1: interventions so so like you know, we talked before about reducing that isolation. So any grief um, program, so like our camp that does that, it it helps kids know that they're not the only one, because in general, a grieving child, you know, and you can relate to this. You feel like it's you're the only one it happened to, and it's so unfair. So they're walking around feeling, this is unfair. Why me? Why do you have to die? And then they. They meet a uh, you know some other kids their own age that it happened to, and then that uh, that helps relieve some of that feeling yeah. that 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 they're the only one. Right. And then, um, in the groups or the camp, we teach them how to express their feelings and how the feelings in their body are related to the emotions that they're having, and we teach them the names for those feelings. Because because they may not have learned the names for those if they're very young kids, mm-hmm. and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, encourage them to express the thoughts that are causing those feelings as well. Because a lot of grief, it's not just feelings; it's thoughts. Right. You know what are you right? What are you thinking about that's making you feel guilty? Yeah. So, you know, guilt being such a big part of grief. Um, for kids thinking that they should have done something or could have done something. Right. Um, right. So, but we need to find out what are they thinking, mm-hmm. help them express the, what they're thinking that's causing the guilty feelings. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: So much of the distinction between childhood grief and adult grief has to do with that egocentricity that 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 children Mm -hmm. are so focused on themselves as being the center of the world still, you know, just developmentally, that's normal for them. So of course, everything is about them. So when something happens, like um, a death that has nothing to do with anything they did, they just can't help but feel like it, it is their fault. It's similar to when parents split up and kids immediately blame themselves
1: um sure so So toddlers that's characteristic of toddlers but it returns in adolescence yes very similar in teens but by the way adults do that too in our we have a full adult program at our house also right and that's a very common conversation in the adult groups too um you know any adult griever you know i i you know just on a personal basis you know for for years after my dad died thought oh if we hadn't done this or if we had done that you know but it's totally illogical even for adults a lot of those would have could have and should have are illogical the way they are for kids
0: yeah yeah so you in your program you have children and adolescents and what are what are sort of some of the main differences you've seen between those two groups
1: well The little ones, you know, we have to do, um, if we have them in group for an hour, we have to do several different things with them, you know, incorporating expressive arts, you know, play, um, movement. So they might do three things during that one hour versus teens, once a group bonds, you know, they might feel comfortable just doing one thing and talking you know, to each other during that same period of time. But um, I I do feel strongly that the teens also need to do expressive arts because a lot of the grief is stored in the nonverbal side of the brain. And by doing writing or drawing about it first, helps it transfer to the verbal side of the brain. So kids come in and they don't always want to talk about it, mm. and they might give you an answer like "I don't know" or "I don't want to talk about it." But then, if you if they're doing an activity first on paper, whether it's writing or drawing, then you can just say, "Tell us about you know your drawing," or "Tell us you know um, tell us what you wrote about." then they're going to be more likely to express themselves because it, that information has transferred to the verbal side of the brain so we do always incorporate some of those kinds of projects into into our activities and give them chances to do express their grief in different ways
0: yeah i imagine with teens cuz teens are so good at putting up their defenses you know especially when they're in pain <laughs> I mean, are there specific strategies you use to help teens feel supported without making them uncomfortable? Or is it really just a matter of kind of letting them do it on their own time and giving them the space and the support to do it?
1: Well, they have the space, you know, they're not, they know they don't have to share if they don't want to share, you know in in a in a circle of teens you know sometimes one thing our we train our group leaders to do is like the uh, the one who is the first one they might like not be ready so we'll say okay we'll come back to you mm-hmm. and then we'll go to the next one and somebody will somebody will start and then after we come back to that that teen who wasn't ready at first, they'll be ready to go Mm. after they've heard somebody else go. Right. It's just, they may not be ready at first. So so we always come back to them and then they go, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we never say, you know, it's just really simple communication techniques that we find that work. You know, like we don't say, does anybody want to share? okay you know we'll just say who wants to go first Mm. so it's like just a tiny tweak like that right you know yeah so yeah those are just things we've learned after being around for a really long time that make a difference right
0: so we were talking about schools and um and all of that work sounds so important but um obviously with covid and in la county we were totally at home for an entire school year um which obviously must have completely upended that program so we were talking a little bit before we started about how our house has had to kind of reinvent and change how you offer programs but you also mentioned that the kids have changed so can you talk a little bit about those two things
1: well we uh we noticed a lot of changes across all three programs. Um, I think it started with the adults, Mm. honestly. That's what I'm thinking now, that because the adults were in so much distress, you know, by having to homeschool their kids and, you know, the economic downturn and, and their own health challenges and stuff, that that it just trickled down to the kids, then there's no, you know, we can't deny that, that, that that I think that that's where it started and mm-hmm. not just be blaming the kids and stuff like you hear about, everybody focuses on how the kids are different, but I really think it's, it starts with the grownups, so, so true, yeah. Um, you know. But, because um, the, the conditions and the caregiving environment are so important in, in how kids do in general. Mm. But we did, uh, we did our groups online um, virtually for so long, but it didn't work for every kid. And, you know, the number of kids that we were serving both in our, in our brick and mortar, so to speak, locations... And in the schools, because they let us do the groups virtually, too, Okay. you know, we were able to still serve kids, but it didn't work for every child. They didn't they didn't like the platform or, um, you know, that it just wasn't it wasn't the same. They weren't able to connect with each other in the same way. Right. But so what we, what we're, the the biggest example of how different the kids were, um, I guess there's two examples. So one is just the number of people that we're seeing seeking out grief support services dropped Mm. hugely, like 75%, Mm. I would say, um, compared to adults. So adults have continued to seek out our services for themselves because they don't mind doing virtual groups we still have a virtual program mm-hmm. um, people have returned to in-person groups but there's still a big demand for virtual services because um, you know all that virtual therapy really mm-hmm. became so popular during the pandemic and and adults, felt comfortable doing group virtually as well. Yep. But for the kids, um, I think the focus was on, you know, school problems and depression and anxiety and this increase in suicidal um, behavior and self-harm and and school phobias and, you know, how hard it was for kids to adjust to going back to school when schools reopened. And, and, you know, like I said to you earlier, grief always falls to the bottom of the barrel when it comes to kids. Kids always fall through the cracks, grieving Mm. kids. And, you know, me doing teaching about grief and working with grieving kids for so many years, it's like... 28 years now i've always noticed and and recognized that grieving kids always fall through the cracks you know the adults get the they take care of themselves and and because the kids if you're going to say to your kids hey i heard about this grief program you know (laughs) are you interested they're going to say no of course not right yeah they're not going to want to go and the parents are going to pick their battles or if grandma's the caregiver now or whoever the caregiver is they're going to pick their battles they got to get their kids to school in the morning right and uh you know so they're going to pick their battles they're not going to bring them to us right that makes so much sense yeah yeah and um we just did our camp so our third program is our our bereavement camp. We just did the first sleepaway camp after only doing day camps during the pandemic. We ventured back to sleepaway camp, and it was it was surprising mm. the behavior problems that we experienced never before. This was my 23rd camp mm. I've done. Wow. 23. Amazing. So, <laughs> I know, and we've never seen the behavior problems that we saw at this camp. Wow, never anything near the types of behaviors that kids were exhibiting
2: huh
1: and And it goes back to what you know you've been reading, and all the listeners have been reading about that how that one year at home just wreaked havoc on kids' social and emotional adjustment, yeah. And it's going to take a few years for them to catch up. Yeah. It's, it's certainly hasn't happened yet.
0: How many nights is the camp?
1: It's just, it's two nights. So okay. they're there like a total of 48 hours. And, um, you know, for some of the kids had a great time, but my, our poor volunteers, mm. they had to work so hard. Mm. to deal with these the the behaviors that we witnessed at, at, in some of the campers that required so much besides grief support you know the grief stuff we were prepared for but not the behavioral issues mm-hmm. that we saw.
0: So you're talking about just not not being good sort of citizens not following the rules not being kind to each other, that kind of
1: thing. Yeah, and we expected, um, yeah, not listening, not um, yeah, and being respectful to each other. We had, um, you know, we made sure that they had when the cabins when they they first meet, they create like inside um, rules for their groups, mm-hmm. right? Right. You know, like cabin guidelines we call it and mm-hmm. we made sure that they had a guideline. Let's let's treat each other the way we want to be treated and you know and any problems that you have at school, we wanna make sure that we don't have those problems here. So so we're gonna make sure that there's no bullying or name calling or um you know hurting anybody in any way that you've been treated at school. And then those things started happening. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was just staggering. Wow. Like I said, we were prepared for the grief. Um, They did beautifully as far as processing their grief. Mm -hmm. Like our grief activities still worked. Um, You know, we have two in-memory ceremonies and that worked. But um, some of it did disrespectful things i heard campers saying mm. you know whispering about things that you know out loud that mm. uh, and i've never heard some of these disrespectful things so
0: right um, which just sounds you know, like it, kids who are in in a lot of pain you know who are doing that kind of thing
1: Oh yeah. They, they were traumatized. They didn't just have grief. They all, they had also experienced some trauma. Yeah.
0: And, right. And it's so exhausting for the leaders too.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, it was. And, you know, so this, this was definitely a byproduct of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I can say that because having done 23 camps. Yeah. Yeah. You know it was definitely something new
0: yeah um but in terms of processing grief um what are some of the obstacles that kids face i mean i think of avoidance as natural for kids and teens not that they should avoid it but that it's pretty normal for them to put off their feelings because the loss of a family member is so overwhelming, but I wonder if working with kids over the years has given you insight into what kids really struggle with in terms of just allowing themselves to start dealing with all the feelings.
1: Well, they, they try really hard to avoid it at first, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're, 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 one of the reasons is they, um, they, because adults don't necessarily avoid it. They, they see their adult grieving, and so they don't want to put any additional burden on the adult. Right. So they they keep all of their feelings all bottled up, um, and may may instead be actually caregiving for the adult because they it's so scary to them to see the grief of their their caregiver. Right. Right. So they're sort of like the, during the first year, this inverse relationship that that we recognize in our in the families that we work with in the first year, where the child is actually taking care of the grown up, mm-hmm. and when the when the adult um, starts to return to their baseline, mm-hmm. you know, functioning like. Yep. which take, which happens hopefully sometime after the first year anniversary or de- um, death day has passed mm-hmm. um, and they then then the child then hopefully feels that the environment is is supportive enough for them to start expressing their thoughts and feelings a little bit more mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So actually, the research supports that that year two and three for kids are the hardest years, mm-hmm. which I guess is also attributed to the fact that kids finally cognitively understand death. Right. So they understand that their person is not coming back on a on a real deep level,
0: right? Cause it takes so long for that, for the, the small person who's always had this, um, caregiver. And generally, I mean, could be a sibling too, but this person in their life for that person to not be there, it takes a long time for the brain to kind of adjust to this new reality. Right.
1: It does because of the, the way the brain, the chemistry in the brain and the wiring and And the kids' children's ability to maintain hope, you know, it it persists because of magical thinking until that first year ends. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, it's my birthday again and they're still not here. Mm. I guess they're never gonna be here. Or it's Christmas again and they're still not here. I guess they're right. He's never coming home.
0: I, what something I've seen in parents is a kind of a magical thinking on the parents' part where they'll say, you know, my child's not crying. So I just don't think they're grieving. And they almost have this idea that like, well, maybe my kid's different and they're just not going to go through anything
1: bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's why they don't put them in groups. Because the, right. the kids are trying not to show their grief, and the parents think, some of them, it's more convenient for them to think that their kids are fine. And actually, there was a, an understanding, a common, um, it's a myth, obviously, that kids don't grieve because they're not old enough to understand the finality of death. Right. So... So people just never even thought that kids were grieving and didn't include them in funerals and stuff for that reason. Right. So right. that's an old belief that went away in the nineties, nineteen nineties or nineteen eighties finally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, um, but it's they're just wrong about that. They're just. That yeah. it's because the kids are hiding it from the adults, right? Or
0: there's sometimes the opposite where a parent says, "I'm concerned that my child isn't crying." Um, yeah. What do you yeah. say? What do you say to parents who ask who say that to you?
1: Well, kids gr- grieve on the inside. Hmm. Is my response to that? They are grieving. They're just grieving on the inside. They don't want to worry you. So they're not showing it. And and they're taking their cues from the grown-ups anyways. So right. if the adult is not sharing their grief with the child, then the child is going to think that that's what they're supposed to do. So if you have an adult who's never modeling, never saying, you know, like is always trying to hide their face when they tear up. Right. You know, you've seen adults do that. Like they'll turn their head the other way. And or try apologize. Not
0: to yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So then the kids think they have to do that. Right.
0: Being in Los Angeles, I would think you guys would see a lot of different, a lot of variations culturally. Um, do you see that? Like, oh, this, oh, this, yeah. yeah.
1: Definitely. So like there's one One thing we've learned, like a lot of what we know, we've learned from the kids that Mm. there aren't, this isn't in textbooks. So one thing we learned, I'll never forget from um, a girl in a school group was that in her culture, you're not allowed to cry because Mm. if you cry, then the soul of the person who is, um, in this in-between place will not get to their final resting place in heaven.
0: Mm. Yeah. I've always felt and, and told people I think it's perfectly healthy for kids to see their parents grieving as a model, but, um, but I don't know what the evidence is on that and if there is sort of a limit to that or if it's, I guess what you were saying about kids being protective of their kids or of their parents or worrying that their parents are in distress, you know, obviously there is a limit to how much you would want to cry in front of a child. But what are your feelings on that?
1: Well, I, I do think it's very appropriate for adults to model that you can, you can cry, you can talk about the person who died, but up, up to a point where it doesn't interfere with their day-to-day functioning. Right. And the kids need to see that they're that it's contained like, oh, yeah, I I do have tears in my eyes right now because I I was just, you know, I I just that picture just reminded me of your dad. And so I was feeling sad. But, um, you know, in in a in a few minutes, I'll be able to um, start making dinner or in a few minutes we can go you know go out into the backyard and um you know so it's it's there's a the kids know it's not going to go on forever it's going to last for a, a, a finite period of time and then they can move on to other activities
0: mhm mhm yeah one thing i think about is how um you know with every loss there's there's a story of that loss. And sometimes Mm -hmm. a parent, sometimes a parent will express concern that their child is sort of fixated on one piece of that story. For instance, like I never got to say goodbye, or they died on my birthday, or no one told me they were dying. Um, And what do you say to parents who are concerned that this child is sort of still talking about the same kind of plot point for many, many years to come? Um,
1: Well, it depends what, what they mean by many years, you know, um, it's it's such a relative term. So Mm. if, if the child, you know, if the child is talking about it, there's a reason why they're talking about it. So, so they, they still need to be listened to, and, mm. and they need to find out why it is the child needs to talk about it. You know, so they're, they're, that particular thought is causing them some kind of distress, probably guilt is what it sounds like from the examples that you just gave that they're, they're blaming themselves or feeling guilty about something or regret about mm. something. And so, um, so some attention needs to be paid to it. Like, yeah. um, I like this, that trauma informed kind of thinking, like, you know, behavior, including, you know, talking about a, a point like you what you just, um, mentioned, you know, that behavior of doing that is a form of communication. So what is it they're trying to communicate by bringing that up all the time? And it's communicating some kind of distress. So what's what's at the bottom of that distress? Right.
0: Is there anything specific you could say about childhood grief that most people just might not know? Anything you've learned? over your many years or anything um that you've really changed in your thinking about childhood grief
1: the thing thing that always impresses me is how well kids do adjust to their life without the person who died and how how especially if they if the ones who come to us because you know there there are these you know kind of silver linings to it that they um, they somehow learn to be really good listeners, be very empathetic and. Um, their their trajectory in life is changed absolutely by because of the death but it can be changed in really great ways you know just like yours was where you know you write this book and then you you, your books and you're doing this podcast you know we have kids they set these goals for themselves like I'm going to do this I'm going to go to medical school and then they do like I I had a boy. Oh my god, this was so it was such a great moment. He had three three brothers. Mom died from a really really hard kind of cancer and um he was the middle brother, I think, and he ended up going to UCLA and you know, we lost track of him um, you know, after he left and one day I, I was reading the New York Times, I always look at the wedding page, mm-hmm. even the work and I see him. He had gotten married and he was a doctor and mm. it said he married like somebody else and he was living back in LA and he was a doctor and he had followed through on what he said. He had become like an oncologist and wow and I know it was because of what happened to him when he was a kid yeah. that he, you know, he probably that probably wasn't what he was going to do if his mom hadn't had cancer. Yeah, yeah, you know, things like that. And then these kids that come back and they volunteer. Now we've been around a while. We have kids that come back and volunteer at camp that were campers, and and I'm just always impressed by by how how they do they don't just survive it they thrive yeah they still thrive and and i i feel lucky that i can offer hope to these adults that are so so worried you know that their kids are going to be ruined for life by Mm. this that they're Mm. scarred for life and and it's just not the case annie it really isn't
0: yeah no especially i think in the initial shock of the death um that's a that's such a an impulse for the surviving parent to be like everything is ruined you know mm-hmm. <laughs> my kids oh, are yeah. ruined my life is ruined everything's terrible um and it just takes time to kind of adjust and see oh yeah my kids are okay and we're okay and in fact we've all grown together in new ways and yeah well lauren thank you so much this has been just a wonderful conversation i really appreciate your the depth of your knowledge and experience and it's um i'm sure just going to give people who are interested in this topic and interested in this podcast a lot to think about so
1: i hope so thanks for it thanks for having me in it's nice talking to you too okay thank you so much